0: Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome to my podcast series on John the Baptist. One of the most influential men in all of history— is a man who lived in the desert, ate locusts and wild honey, wore clothes made from camel's hair secured with a leather belt, and lived for one purpose alone, to point others to Jesus Christ. Over the next three podcasts, we're going to learn about the miraculous birth, the amazing life, and the tragic death of John the Baptist. You've probably heard stories and know some interesting facts about his life and ministry, but I think right now he's such an important and relevant person for us to study because, honestly, we live in a world where many are driven to seek monetary success, recognition, and fame, and John's radical life is a direct contrast to this. Let's take a deeper look into the passion that fueled his life and uncover what we can learn from the heart of this wise, powerful soul. We're going to start out by looking at the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5, and then verse 9. Comfort my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Prophets of old, Isaiah and Malachi, spoke of his coming. I just read their verses. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, ends with powerful words closing both the book and the Old Testament with the hope of what was still to come. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6 said, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Now, years before this was written, in fact, 700 years before Jesus is born, Isaiah spoke words about John the Baptist. Isaiah, just like John the Baptist will become, was a prophet preaching repentance and encouraging people to live for God. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Now, after Malachi's entry in the Bible, there had been 400 years of silence. That's the span of time between when the writings of the Old Testament ended and the writings of the New Testament began. Did you ever notice how there's a blank page or sometimes multiple pages in your Bible between the Old and the New Testament? Did you ever wonder what that was for? Maybe to take notes? Well, yeah, but it's also a metaphor kind of representing this 400 year span of quote silence between the entries of the Old Testament and the stories of the New Testament. Now, don't get me wrong, a lot was going on with Israel during this time. Rule by the Babylonians, invasion by Alexander the Great, Hellenistic rule, Maccabean revolt, and then the Roman rule. But it's just not written in the Bible. So for all intents and purposes, it kind of seemed God was quiet during these 400 years. The next Entries in the Bible in the New Testament are about John the Baptist who comes to prepare the way of the Lord just as Malachi ends his entry 400 years before. If you look at your Bible, the order of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is not actually the order that we believe that they were written. The earliest Gospel writing we believe was Mark. Mark possibly written around 65 AD. And Mark's gospel starts with the quote from Isaiah about John the Baptist. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. God knew exactly when John needed to be born. No, it didn't make sense to his parents at the time, Elizabeth and Zechariah. The story of his miraculous birth is told by the gospel writer Luke. And we're told that Luke is a physician, a doctor. What's so remarkable about Luke's account of the story of both John the Baptist's miraculous birth and Jesus' miraculous birth is that Luke tells us he carefully investigated these stories in fact he tells us that right off the bat in his very first chapter very first verse many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those from the very first eyewitnesses and servants of the word with this in mind since i myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning i too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. The Gospel writer Luke tells us right off the bat, look, while this stuff I'm going to tell you may seem so incredible, I've investigated it, and I'm a doctor, and I know how things work. He then launches into the story of the miraculous birth of John the Baptist, starting at verse 5. In the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old the next part of the story i actually talked briefly about in my temple talk podcast the gospel writer luke gives us this background explaining look elizabeth and zechariah they're godly people they're righteous in the sight of god and their barrenness is not because of some curse which is what ancient jews thought because Every Jewish woman since Eve thought she potentially could be the mother of the promised Messiah. So therefore, not being able to bear children was considered a curse on their family. But Luke says, no, Elizabeth barren and they're old. And then Luke also gives us a little family genealogy. And he says, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're both part of the priestly line of Levi. In fact, they're descendants of Aaron, who you might recall is Moses' brother. And then he tells us, okay, Zechariah is a priest. He's one of the thousands of temple priests. And this particular day, he's chosen to go into the temple to burn incense. And in my temple talk podcast, I described What an amazing honor this was. Incense was burned outside of the Holy of Holies twice a day in this little room right outside of the Holy of Holies. When the people would see incense rising from the temple, it would remind them, stop whatever you're doing and pray. And Luke tells us there were many worshipers assembled right outside waiting to see the incense rise. The lighting of the incense was such a special honor because priests could go an entire lifetime and never have their lot drawn to be able to go into the sanctuary to light the incense. And this room is so special because on the other side of the curtain is the presence of God, the Holy of Holies. So this very special tiny room would be dark, only lit by a menorah. And the room on the other side, the Holy of Holies, Well, you only got to go in there if you were a high priest. That's the highest order of priests. There's only one. And he only got to go in there one day a year for Yom Kippur. So to be a priest, to be right next to that room, was quite an honor. So... Luke tells us Zechariah, his lot is chosen. He gets to go into the sanctuary to light the incense. And here we have the story, starting at verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Can you only imagine how scared you would be? When Zechariah saw him, he was startled, of course, and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you're to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit Even before he is born, he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. Oh my goodness, so the people are waiting, they see the incense rise, and then they're waiting and waiting and waiting, and he doesn't come out, and... So they know something had happened, but now Zechariah can't even tell them about it. The story continues at verse 23. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. Now get this, Luke tells us that Zechariah has had this amazing encounter with Gabriel. He's lost his ability to speak and he still can't take a sick day. He has to finish his job. And then when he gets home, can you imagine the the loss of of ability to communicate what has just happened? It's incredible. But then in verse 24, after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Because she'd been barren for years, she's old, and I know she probably had completely given up hope. Yet God's timing was not too late or too early. It was right on time. God knew John needed to be the forerunner of Christ at this time in history. He had design and purpose in the timing of John's birth, and the family that he was born to. Interestingly, John is related to Jesus. Luke in one thirty-six says, Elizabeth and Mary are kinswomen, And that means they're related in some way through marriage or blood, but the Bible doesn't specifically say how. So while you may have heard Jesus and John referred to as cousins, we don't really know what the relationship was. Luke tells us Mary then goes to Elizabeth's house to announce her own miraculous pregnancy that was also told to her by Gabriel. And this story starts at verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice she exclaimed, "'Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy.'" Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Luke says the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Even before his birth, John's purpose is being aligned. The Bible tells us that Mary is going to stay with Elizabeth for three months Can you imagine the conversations that they had? Now let's take a look at John's birth. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and They would have named him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, his name shall be John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his Tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Traditionally, women would name their children based on, what they were feeling during pregnancy, what they maybe felt immediately upon the birth of their child, or the Bible tells us in the case of Esau, what he looked like when he came out, because the name Esau means red and hairy. Luke tells us that Elizabeth knew this baby truly was a result of God's mercy. And so, yeah, it would make sense to name him Zechariah, because that means The Lord remembers. But this special child deserved a special name. And Elizabeth remained faithful to Gabriel's instructions and gave him the name John, which means God is gracious. Luke seems to imply that there was quite a crowd assembled for the circumcision. Could have been in a synagogue. Now, an interesting side note, on Bible fact is that during this time period, so the time period that John the Baptist and Jesus are born, men and women are not segregated in the synagogue. So chances are Elizabeth and Zechariah were standing right next to each other during the circumcision. Women actually were counted as part of the quorum in the synagogue and had many rights at this time. In fact, one of the only things they weren't allowed to do was to read the scriptures Now here's something ironic. Contrast this with today in Orthodox synagogues. I actually saw this when I was in Israel. Men and women walk into the synagogue separately, and the machitza is the name of the physical barrier separating the men's section and the women's section. In Orthodox congregations, men and women are not allowed to sit together. And the reason is because they are supposed to focus on God and not be distracted by each other. The height of the machitza, well, it can vary. It could be a curtain or a screen or bookshelves. I think that's funny. Or even plants. I love it. Like people trying to look through the plants to see the girls on the other side. I just think that's very funny. But... It does go on, and even at the Western Wall, which is also called the Wailing Wall, a separation. The men are on the left as you're facing the wall, the women on the right. And when I visited King David's tomb, men and women both view the tomb from separate rooms. Getting back to the story. Tradition would be that a boy would be named during his circumcision ceremony, which is on the eighth day. Tradition also states that the mom and the dad would not discuss the name with anyone beforehand. So the Bible story here implies that everyone just assumed that the name would be Zechariah after the father. And what's so funny is the crowd you can kind of see looks to Zechariah expecting him to exercise his veto over his wife when she says, no, his name will be John. But to everyone's surprise, Zechariah emphatically agrees with his wife, saying, no, his name is John. And then can you imagine the whispers? John? Who's John? I didn't know they had a John in the family. must be one of her relatives. And even though the crowd is still wondering, Luke tells us Zechariah's speech returns because this is a sign that his time of discipline is complete. And so can you imagine the miraculous timing of his healing and his ability to talk. So now there's even more rumors about how special this baby is. This will definitely be turning out to one bris that everybody wished that they had attended. But the birth story doesn't end there. And I don't know if you know this part of the story, but what happens next is just as remarkable because Just as Zechariah is able to speak, he starts to prophesy. And this is often called the Benedictus. And it starts at verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. This Benedictus is incredible for a number of reasons. First, after nine months of complete silence, these are some pretty incredible words right out of Zechariah's mouth, praising God, the God of Israel. And he's recalling hundreds of years of God's work in the history, beginning with Abraham. And then he has this specialized message, the special role for his own son, John. And you, my child, will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. Think about... Zechariah's inability to speak for almost a year. We have neighbors, family, and maybe even sometimes ourselves. We ignore the clear instruction of God's word, and we live as if we're unable to speak sometimes, don't we? A few years ago, a song began to get quite a bit of play on Christian radio, and the chorus of the song was this. Give me revelation. Show me what to do because I've been trying to find my way and I haven't got a clue. Tell me, should I stay here or do I need to go? Give me revelation. I've got nothing without you. Yeah, there are times in our life when God appears to be silent. I know sometimes I want God to be like a GPS that provides that turn by turn navigation. Okay. Turn left here, you go 3 miles, make a slight right-hand turn. But actually, God's word is more like a compass that points us in the right direction. When God told Abraham, for example, leave Ur of the Chaldees, he didn't tell him where to go or what route to take. He just said, "Go, and I'm going to tell you when to stop." And that pillar of fire and cloud that led the Hebrews as they were crossing the desert. God simply said, stay close to me. I'm going to let you know when it's time to stop. And the Magi, when they left the East, they didn't know that they would end up in a house in Judea. They just headed out, presumably stopped where God told them to. Zechariah talked about a horn of salvation This is a metaphor for an ox who butts away a predator. God has provided one who pushes away our enemies. Zechariah talks about salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Let's be honest. God's people have always had enemies, foreign and domestic, who make obedience to God difficult. There are many who may not physically interfere with your faith, but maybe their hate influences your ability to love them, and that in turn robs you of joy. But Zechariah continues in verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to Give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. John's message is going to be to point people to Jesus, and this becomes our great privilege as well because Honestly, we don't have the responsibility or the ability to correct all of society's ills. The darkness is too vast and our abilities are so limited, and well, the job is too big. But those of us who have the knowledge of salvation through faith and repentance have the privilege of introducing others to the forgiveness of their sins and the ability to turn their darkness into hope. As we lead them to the light, just like John the Baptist did, we should not be silent. God has told us to go. Which way? Towards Him. Towards the light. Let's pray this week that we can help shine on those living in darkness. Instead of becoming frustrated or angry with those who seem so misguided and lost, Ask God how you can help guide the world's feet into the path of light.